I'm going to read the whole of Acts chapter 6, and then we're going to skip ahead. Um, uh, Stephen uh, makes a speech in chapter 7, which we're going to um, jump in at the end of his speech, uh, verse 51. So starting at chapter 6, verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then skipping ahead to the end of his speech, in chapter 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. Please pick up uh, your Bibles as you take to your seats. I'd love for you to have that passage open. So we're in the journey of looking at the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is about the growth of the church as God grows his people. Acts chapter 1, 120 believers are in our upper room. 
Acts chapter 2, huge church growth happens as God sends the Holy Spirit. The church kind of explodes. 3,000 people are added to the number. By the time you get to chapter 4, verse 4, 3,000 has become 5,000 people. At least, that's just the men. Just the way they counted things in those days. Be loads of women, loads of boys and girls as well. In other words, the church faced the problem. Problem of church growth. What a problem to have. That wasn't the only problem. Suffering was increasing. The temperature was increasing. Persecution was growing. And one of the interesting things as God grew his church, as he still does today, was how the early church, the Christians, were able to stand up in the face of suffering. How did they do that? What resources did they have? You Google how to handle suffering, you'll get a load of nonsense and it won't be very helpful at all. Anthropologists, sociologists, people that look at culture, look at how people function, look at how societies work, they say our generation, our culture and our society, like one never beforehand, is ill-equipped to handle a life of pain and suffering and difficulty. Previous generations had resources. Maybe it was fortitude. Maybe it was a stiff upper lip. It may not have worked very well, but at least they had something, a mechanism, a means to face suffering and look at suffering and difficulty head on. Maybe it was Christian principles. Maybe it was trusting a higher source or a higher power. But our society, our generation, like one never before, has very limited resources, if any at all, to handle the reality of living in a difficult and fallen world. I mean, we do our best. Maybe it's the principle of the potpourri. We, we, we just look at the resources that we have. We go to the uh, Eastern religions. Perhaps we go to the reality of, of food and comfort and we just do our best to muddle through. We sanitise best we can the reality of our own mortality. We push it off. We, we spend tens of thousands of pounds of, of lifting things that are moving south. Don't look at me too closely, please. But in Christianity, there are real resources for facing the reality of life in a fallen world, as the Bible describes it. There's been lots of firsts in the book of Acts as well. We've, we've met the first church, first church leadership, We've had the first sermon. If we had time, we would have read the longest sermon from the lips of Stephen. We've had lots of firsts. And today we're going to read about and hear explained about the first death, Stephen's martyrdom. There's a lot of ground to cover. We're going to do it as best we can. But three things from the lips of Stephen. I want us to listen to what Stephen said. I want us to think about that. Because from the life of Stephen, we see a resource, the only resource for handling life in a fallen world and handling the reality of suffering. We want us to look at, therefore, at what Stephen said. We want to see what he saw and maybe we can do what he did. Okay, What he said, what he saw and what he did. First of all, what Stephen said, here it is. As, as Chris said, we've been looking at this unit Acts 4, Acts 5, Acts 6, here are three struggles that the church is facing. If you're new to this, it's very important to get a bird's eye view. Chapter 4, 
Persecution is on the increase. It's persecution from the outside. The church is facing suffering. Christians are now losing their freedom and they're now getting banged up. They're being put in prison. And it's not the last time that will happen. But then there's, uh, as Dave handled so helpfully last week, there's compromise from the inside. Christians think that sin is something that can just be tasted and there'll be no consequences. That, that the church can be compromised and it will be okay. And God says, no, sin is serious Compromise is deadly. I won't have anything of it in my church. And then we get to Acts 6. Having been on the outside and looked to the inside, there's the real danger. Perhaps it looks uh, a bit too uh, innocuous, perhaps not too serious, but it's the real danger of distraction. It's the first time we meet Stephen. Look at me, with me please. Uh, Acts chapter 6. The the third challenge to the great call that God has given to his uh, church in Acts chapter 1. Verse 8, I want you to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. 4, 5 and 6, three challenges that, f- that thwart potentially that great call. It's the danger of distraction. Chapter 6, verse 1, the numbers are growing. Up to 5,000 people, chapter 4, verse 4, need to be cared for. And the apostles need to focus on the apostolic ministry of prayer and of preaching, of proclamation, of life-giving message centred on the person of Jesus Christ. And there's this great temptation to say, no, we're going to put our prayer down, we're going to put our Bibles down, and we're going to care to a real practical need that is important. And it's the need of food. There are widows, chapter 6, verse 1, that need to be fed that need to be cared for, that need to be listened to, that need to be nurtured. But the apostles say we must not neglect our call from the Lord, which is to pray and to preach. So we need to get organised, we need to think strategically. Never think that uh, administration is not important. Never think that careful prayer and thinking through strategy as people lead ministries in the church and churches and parachurch organisations and new initiatives is not important. Acts chapter 6 tells us it is vital to pray that God would send people with practical skill sets to help. But it's always hand in hand with proclamation of the gospel. Chapter 6 verse 3, Stephen is one of the men who we meet, one of seven men who have put in charge of daily distribution of food under the authority of the apostles. So the word of God continued to increase. Why? Because they prayed and got organised. So never despise administration. Always hold in high regard those people, men and women, who can think strategically and carefully under the authority of the word of God. But Stephen, you see, he's not just good at getting organised. He's also a dynamic preacher-teacher. And because of his preaching ministry, he gets arrested. Just like Stephen, uh, excuse me, just like uh, Peter and John did in chapter 4, Stephen gets banged up. He gets called before the uh, ruling officials of the day. And verse 13 and verse 14 of chapter 6 tells us the charges that he's being held up against him. This fellow speaks against the temple and the law and says, Because of Jesus of Nazareth, we don't need the temple or the law of God anymore. Get rid of the temple. Get rid of the law. That's what they're accusing him of. And then there's this huge speech, which we read of in chapter 7. It's five to six times 
longer than the next longest speech in the book of Acts. So Stephen gets, doesn't get carried away, he gets uplifted by the Spirit of God to answer these two great accusations. And in answering the two great accusations, actually there's a third stream that he identifies as well. It's a little bit like a rope. So as quickly as I can, let's look at 50 verses in the Bible and these two accusations that are against him. Here he says, first of all, Stephen says, well, I don't think we need the temple. We don't need the temple to find God. Let me prove it to you, eyes down. Verse 2 of chapter 7. There's a man called Abraham, Stephen says. Abraham didn't need to have a temple to meet with God. Verse 9. There's a man called Joseph in Egypt that God used greatly. Joseph didn't have the temple to meet with God. Verse 20 of chapter 7. Remember Moses from your history? God met Moses out in the wilderness at the burning bush and there was no temple. Verse 48. Even after the temple was built, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 66 here. He says, God does not dwell in a house made by hands. He's not a tribal deity. He's too great. He's too vast. He's too good to be bound just by a temple. That's the first thread of this rope, this three-cord rope that Stephen is showing. No, you don't need a temple in order to find God. You don't need a temple in order to meet with God. Here's the second thing. Having refuted verse 13 of chapter 6, the first uh, accusation against him, he then goes on to the second. What about the law? Can we do away with the law? Well, no. Under Moses, under Aaron, under Amos, you did not obey the law, he says to the Jewish people. The law is good because God has given the law and God is a good God. But if we're living under the law, here's the problem. You've never kept it. And outside of Jesus... No one ever has. The law is good. Let's not accuse me of saying that the law is bad. But there is a problem. If you want to live under the law, no one can. That's the second accusation from chapter 6, verse 14. But thirdly, there's another thread that's running through this rope of chapter 7. Stephen says, I've noticed something. All through your history, when God by his mercy sends a messenger, a deliverer, to rescue his people, You never listen to what they say and you always reject them and you've always persecuted them. Remember Joseph? He goes back to history again. He was appointed by God to save his family and many more and yet his very family wanted to kill him. Remember Moses? First time he wanted to flex his muscles and rescue God's people from Egypt. They rejected him and he had to flee and spent lots of his life in the desert. Remember David, David, king of Israel. Well, he spent lots of his time in the wilderness. So these three great uh, accusations and observations that Stephen makes with his life on the line, it's it's just building to a great culmination that we read in chapter 7, verses 51, 52, and 53. Now we can slow down. This is the problem, and this is the solution. There's a sandwich here, it's on the screen behind me. Verse 51, this is what he says to his hearers. With his life on the line, with the courage of God in his belly and in his heart. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts. You've got a hard heart. 
You think I'm the problem, chapter 6, verse 13 and 14. You, th- you accuse me of saying the temple is to be destroyed and the law is rubbish. That's not true. You're the problem because of your spiritually hard hearts. Stephen says you do all these externals, you look so competent and godly and righteous on the outside, but you're wicked in your hearts. Verse 53, you haven't kept the law. Your hearts are filled with cruelty. You need something you do not have. You need a new heart. And right in the middle, verse 52, you get to the core of everything he says in chapter 7. He's summarising verse 52 of chapter 7. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. I'm all for the law, says Stephen. The law is good. But we can't be saved without fulfilling the law. And yet you can't fulfil the law. No one can. What's the answer to this great problem? It's there in verse 52. It's a person and he has a name. And Stephen uses this very interesting phrase, the righteous one. This is the only time that Jesus is called the righteous one in the whole of the New Testament. Of all the titles Stephen could have given to Jesus, he chooses this, uh, this very interesting phrase at the end of this long argument. He's, he's summarising and he's talking about the law that no one has lived up to apart from one. And his name is the righteous one. I mean, how do you fulfil the law? How do you keep it? You break one part of it, you might as well break it all. You have broken it all. Either you keep the law, you obey the law, or you pay the penalty when you break the law. Now here's an example that to, uh, I don't want anyone looking at anyone next to them at this point. And as a church, we endorse the law of the land, which is to stop at a red light. Just say that publicly. But just imagine you are 300 metres away from the lights. You're doing 20 miles an hour because it's a 20 mile an hour zone outside of school and you never ever exceed that. Stop smirking. Even if you're walking, it's under 20 miles an hour. And yet it goes from green to amber. And you think, I'll get through. No one is around. No one sees. It goes red quicker than you thought. And yet you still go through. You did not notice the speed camera. You did not notice the camera that was there to stop people just like you and just like me too. In comes the letter through the post box and you think it must be for you. It's Father's Day, here's a present. But it's not, it's got your name on it. Now what will you do? You've been found guilty, you've gone through the red lights, here's the choice. You pay or you receive the consequences. If you pay then the law is off your back. If you receive the points, then the law is off your back. You receive the penalty for breaking the law. The law has no more claim on you. Or you don't. And the law still has a claim on you because justice has to be served. You've been through a red light. And there are lots of other examples, whether it be speeding, not looking at anyone in particular, and lots of other things as well. From the moment he was born, Jesus lived a perfect life. Why does Stephen call him the righteous one? Because Jesus lived the life that we couldn't. He loved 
the Lord God with all his heart, soul, mind and all of his strength from the minute he was born. He loved his neighbour as himself. No other human being has ever lived a perfect life like that. So in that sense, he was and is the righteous one and he receives the blessing of eternal life. But when he went to the cross, he was rejected, he was betrayed, he was denied, he suffered and he died. And as he did that, he took all the rejection, all the punishment that we deserved for our disobedience. So that when you believe in him, when you trust in him, when you take him, not just in his uh, assessment of our condition, but also the reward that he has won, that he offers to us freely, when you trust him by faith, he's not just the righteous one, he becomes your righteousness. And as God the Holy One looks at you in him, he sees the perfect righteousness of his son. And just as he never sinned, all your sins that have been carried by him means that you are absolutely pure and spotless because of him, because you've been united to him, the righteous one, and you are in him, safe and secure. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. Jesus is the righteous one. Now, just before we move on, why is it, I've been scratching my head as I cut my hair because it's so hot this week, thinking, why is this sermon so long? <laughs> why is it five to six times longer than the next longest sermon? And how come it was recorded anyway when Stephen is stoned to death in the most brutal way? And then I got thinking at the start of Luke's gospel, Luke also wrote Acts. Luke says specifically how he get all his evidence on the life and ministry of Jesus and the growth of the early church and its suffering from eyewitnesses. He says that at the start of his gospel. Luke went and listened to people and he wrote careful notes. Many have taken to undertake an account of Jesus' life and here's my version. How do we know what Stephen says? Well, there was one eyewitness whose name was Saul, later renamed Paul. And many people have noticed how all the themes in Stephen's long sermon shape and are repeated and developed in the ministry and writing of the Apostle Paul. Verse 58 of chapter 7. We are introduced to this young man who hold the coats of the people who were distributing the most brutal death. I mean, Stephen did not have a very long life, did he? He had one sermon one ministry, he helped some widows get some food. But this whole experience would have been very, very moving and formative for Saul, who was later named Paul. We're told at the end of uh, chapter 6, verse 15, as Stephen was speaking, while he was on trial for his very life, his face was like an angel. It doesn't mean his complexion. There's something about his countenance that is heavenly. He can see something with the eyes of his heart that shapes how he speaks and how he delivers these great confrontational truths. He wasn't snarling with aggression, trying to defend himself, and neither was he timidly trembling. He was looking at people who had the power and desire to kill him. And do you know what he says about them? Chapter 7, verse 51, you stiff-knit people. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And at the moment, as they were throwing stones and rocks at his head, 
to end his life and crush his skull, chapter 7, verse 16, says this. He's praying for him. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. His heart's filled with love like his saviour. And Paul never saw any one of the, the hundreds, if not the thousands of Christians that he saw die. He never saw anyone die like this. You see, it wasn't just what Stephen said. It wasn't just how he suffered and the brilliance of what he saw cut Paul to the heart. I'm convinced of it. And through Stephen's Jesus-like death in his countenance and what he said, praying for his oppressors, he changed all of history. And through Paul, God changed the world. His death was not in vain. It wasn't just what he said, you see. It's also what he saw. Look at what Stephen saw as we move secondly to that point. What did Stephen see? Verse 54 of chapter 7. As he was about to die, those who he was speaking to were furious. furious. They gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and, verse 56, I see heaven open and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now the right hand of God is the throne room. It's the heavenly dwelling of God. The heavenly council lived there. And like most nations and kingdoms, the throne room was also the courtroom. If you look in ancient antiquity, maybe Egypt, Mesopotamia, Persia, Syria, the the throne room was also the courtroom. You would go and receive the, the judgment from the king or the queen. And in many places in the Bible we're told that Jesus, having died for the sins of the world, was raised to life again by his father and then ascended to to to, to heaven. We see that in Acts chapter 1. And as he ascended, he rules and reigns and his work is complete. There's nothing else in terms of salvation to be done. And so he's sat down at his father's right hand as a prime minister. His work is finished. But here, here, not only do we have the only time in the Bible that Jesus is called the righteous one, here we have the only time in the Bible that Jesus is seen to be standing. It's very significant His work of salvation is over, it's complete, it's finished. There's no more crosswork to be done and yet Jesus is not sat twiddling his thumbs in heaven. He's not kind of complaining to his father, see I told you father I would rescue them and then look what they've done with my salvation. He's not saying anything like that. What is Jesus doing now? He's interceding for us. He's standing as advocate He's standing with us. As intercessor, he's speaking on our behalf. He's interceding, applying his past atoning work on the cross, moment by moment. So when we sin, as it were, God the Father hears the lips of Jesus saying, Father, you must not punish them again because I've taken their sin upon my shoulders. To punish them again would be to pour doubt on your justice and your just character. Father, remember the sufficient sacrifice that I died to give. Jesus is speaking on Stephen's behalf. 
He's being condemned before this mock trial. He's being stoned to death and he's being condemned by the lips of Saul and others. And yet he's being commended in the only courtroom that really counts. Jesus didn't die and rise again on our behalf and then stand in heaven with his arms crossed. He's working, not in terms of salvation, he's working as priest. And he's speaking on your behalf when you fail and fall. Father, remember my crosswork. Father, remember my atoning work. Father, remember. He continues to work on our behalf. Just imagine this horrific thought. Here's a GoPro. I don't know how many millions of these are around the world. They're absolutely brilliant bits of kit. You can put it on the end of a ski and, well, if that happened, you'd see me fall. You can put it on the end of a surfboard. You can put it around your chest as you're doing mountain biking around Epsom Common. Wherever you are, you strap it to whatever you're doing, onto a helmet if you're doing a motorbike trip through Sweden up to the North Pole over the Arctic Circle. But just imagine this horrendous thought. Here's a GoPro that gets a... It gets attached to your chest with, 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 a, with a belt that grows over time. Every thought you ever think is viewed and recorded somehow with this GoPro 2.0, let's say. Every place you go to is recorded. Every word you say is recorded on audio. Every image you see on computer screen or with your eyes, every second look you take is recorded on the unlimited memory of the GoPro. You get to the end of your life and guess what? There is a time of judgment and and, uh, there's charity there. And so here's the charity. No condemnation for you on anyone other's standard but your own. Let's just use your own benchmark and see how you fare. There's not a person on earth who would not stand condemned, even by your own standards. Imagine if that memory card comes out or it gets plugged into God's USB as it were, and it's, it's on his computer in the sky. How would you fare then against his standards that are far higher and purer than ours? If there's no heavenly courtroom, what hope is there for you? What hope is there for you and all the injustices of the world? If there is a heavenly throne and a heavenly bench and a heavenly courtroom, What hope is there for you and me? Stephen knows that there is hope because Stephen sees the righteous one. He sees the righteous father looking at him and he sees Jesus standing for him, interceding for him. And here's what Jesus is saying. Father, my people have sinned. That's right. The sin needs to be punished. But I've been punished and I've paid for their sin with my very blood. Don't take another payment, Father, because that would be unjust. But because of my crosswork, because of my sufficient death, once and for all, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the only place of safety before the, uh, the everlasting GoPro. The moment Stephen was in an earthly courtroom, he was being condemned. But because of Jesus' word, he was being commended. No one on earth was speaking for him, but in heaven Jesus was. Now this has huge implications for our hearts. 
This is not just a concept that the Bible teaches. How many of us live as Christians believe that Jesus is our great high priest? He speaks on our behalf. He stands with us as advocate. He speaks for us as intercessor. And yet we live in a very different way. Jesus speaks for us in the heavenly realms. There's no condemnation. But actually I live for the approval of other people. I believe in the truth that Jesus speaks for me, but I can't hear him. So I live for the approval of my friends. And I'll keep quiet when it comes to speaking about Jesus, because I'd rather have your approval in a manifest local way than realising that I already have his approval forever. If we could see that in heaven, Jesus is speaking for us. He is eternally and forever hitting the refresh button, as it were, like you do on a, you know, a web page freezes. What do you do apart from get angry and hit the computer? You hit refresh, that little kind of line. You say, I just want to refresh it, just going to revamp it. Jesus is in heaven. And every time as he speaks for us, he is, as it were, refreshing in God's mind his cross work on our behalf so that we are eternally safe and eternally secure. So we need not fear what people say about us, because even if they condemn us, Jesus is commending us. That would just bring liberty to so many people were we to see it and to grasp it in our hearts. Everyone, including me, sets our hearts on things in this world to give us life and meaning and worth. If it's anything in this world that you place ultimate significance and importance on, suffering has power to destroy that thing, whether it's a person, a place, or a thing. But if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and his glory, then in face of suffering and even death, you've set your heart on the one thing that suffering and death cannot destroy. And that means you can handle anything. How did Stephen keep going to the end? Because in his heart, he saw the heavens rendered open and he saw the reality of his faith turned into sight. And if you could see that, it would liberate you from being bound to the approval of people. It's what he said, it's what he saw. What did he do? Finally and quickly, what did Stephen do? Well, this is what he did. Through the lips of Stephen, God literally changed the world because Saul heard Stephen's words and his testimony and through Saul, whose name was changed to Paul, the gospel went to the nations. Notice at the very end of chapter 8, verse 1, Luke makes it clear what happened and the significance of Stephen's speech and Saul's actions. 8.1 on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. How did God use the seemingly meaningless death, the first martyr whose name was Stephen, just a wasted life? No, it was not. Because of his death, because of his courageous life and the first message that he ever gave and perhaps his last, the gospel went out. 
chapter 8, verse 1, you will be my witnesses, go out to Judea, to Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And yet here's the problem, not for the last time in Christian history of the church, Christians did not do what God said. They stayed put. And so what did God have to do? He had to encourage them out. He had to kick them out. Through this terrible persecution, chapter 8, verse 1, the church is mobilised to do what God told it to do. And it gets dispersed and it uh, disbands throughout the whole of the known world. I want you to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. I want you to go to different cultures and different places. I want you to go where no one knows your name or even my name. And that's exactly what they did. See, Stephen's death was not wasted and death never is. Stephen's death leads to an explosion of resurrection life. There's the biblical principle that suffering leads to glory. Suffering leads to glory. Sometimes that's very hard to believe. But the Bible says that that is true. Every time suffering comes upon you, we face a choice. The orders of our hearts, loves, can be reordered and properly ordered. Jesus can be made as number one. He can be put right at the top where he belongs. But so often I relegate him down the order. We never like God or love God as we should. But when suffering comes, do all that you can, friends, to reorder the loves of your heart. Through asking the Holy Spirit to fill you afresh, through breathing the oxygen that comes from God's lungs through his word, through worship, through prayer. And then you may see just what Stephen saw and to see more of it with God's help, longing to see the reality of heaven but in the present. As I tell you, as hard and as difficult as suffering is, it will turn to glory. You will see some glory in this life, but you will certainly see glory later.